Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Welcome back, my Open Our Bibles Together study friends. I'm so glad you're here. So as many of you already know by now, I am always looking for evidences of Jesus in my study time, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. So with that said, I thought we would start today's episode with this reading as a recap of what's already happened with Adam and Eve and Noah, what is about to happen with the rainbow, and a vineyard incident, plus move on into the Tower of Babel before we dig into our first scripture reading today. Ready? Me too. Our recap content begins in this way. As Adam and Eve bear children, the stain of sin is seen from the very start. Their firstborn son Cain murders their second son Abel in a rage of jealousy and is cursed by God. After generation and generation of sin, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. God decides to wipe out all of humanity and every living creature with a flood, except Noah, a righteous man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we saw in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, he commands Noah to build an ark and bring his family and a pair of every creature into the ark to preserve them from the flood of judgment. After a 40-day storm and a nearly 12-month flood, Noah and his family and the animals leave the ark, which had saved them from God's judgment on the earth. God makes a covenant with Noah and promises to never curse the ground again and never destroy all living creatures as he has done with the flood. This covenant with Noah is part of a long history of covenants that God makes with his people from Noah to Abraham to Jacob to Moses to David. Just as he had done with Adam, God told Noah to begin a new humanity by being fruitful and multiplying. And yet, even in the righteous Noah, we begin to see the weakness of the covenant and its failure to produce a new humanity. It's not long before Noah, like Adam, gives himself to sinful desire, and it's not long before some of Noah's descendants are cursed, just as Cain was in Genesis chapter 9, verse 25. Soon humanity gathers together and builds a tower to make a name for themselves in defiance against God. Knowing their intentions, God comes down and disperses them among the earth. The history of Adam and Eve has repeated itself all over again, and it will in every generation. The pride of man sets itself up against the knowledge of God and Almighty God responds with judgment. Despite Noah's righteousness, despite the ark, and despite the judgment of the worldwide flood, humanity could not rid itself of its greatest problem, sin and death. Through Noah and the ark, it appeared that God was bringing a fresh beginning to the earth. But because the flood failed to remove the stain of sin from humanity, history repeats itself, and humanity continues in rebellion to the word of God. All of this points to the need for a Savior to come who, like the ark, would preserve everyone who takes refuge in Him and save them from the wrath and judgment of God. There would yet be a Savior who, like Noah, would stand out as righteous in a sinful world. This Savior would not just save people from judgment. By dying for the sins of the world and rising again to life, He would take away their greatest problem, sin and death, and bring them into an everlasting covenant with God. Phew! There is quite a bit happening in this summary from a visual theology guide to the Bible in the section of the book titled Flood, Jesus Foreshadowed. 
Okay, friends, so now that we have an overview of where we've been so far in previous episodes, plus a sneak peek into where we are heading today, let's begin our reading of Genesis chapter 9 from the New Living Translation. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, all the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. I have placed them in your power. I have given them to you for food, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. But you must never eat any meat that still has the lifeblood in it. And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. Now be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants, and with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I am giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is a sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds, and I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. Then God said to Noah, Yes, this rainbow is a sign of the covenant I am confirming with all the creatures on earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the boat with their father were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan. From these three sons of Noah came all the people who now populate the earth. After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground, and he planted a vineyard. One day he drank some wine he had made, and he became drunk and lay naked inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a robe, held it over their shoulders, and backed into the tent to cover their father. As they did this, they looked the other way so they would not see him naked. When Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. Then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of the servants to his relatives. Then Noah said, May the Lord, the God of Shem, be blessed, and may Canaan be his servant. May God expand the territory of Japheth. May Japheth share the prosperity of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Noah lived another 350 years after the great flood. He lived 950 years, and then he died. Goodness gracious, there is a lot to unpack here, so let's start off with this excerpt from Right Now Media's study called God's Unbreakable Promises. We can only imagine how Noah and his family must have felt as they finally stepped out of the ark and into the world. Almost a year had passed since their feet had touched steady ground. The world they knew had been washed away, and the world they were stepping into must have seemed strange and lonely. Although we are not told what Noah was thinking or feeling as he made his way out of the ark, we do know that he recognized God had saved him. We know this because when Noah left the ark, he built an altar to God. Genesis chapter 8 verse 20. God was pleased with Noah and receiving his worship promised to never again curse the ground because of man. Genesis chapter 8 verse 21. The land bore the curse when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. It was the land that had absorbed God's judgment when humanity had given themselves over to wickedness. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, and again in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. From this point forward, the land would never bear the curse of sin again. God turned to Noah and his sons and gave them a blessing and a mandate. Be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. If this sounds familiar, it's because it should. Because in this blessing and mandate, we see a mirroring of Genesis chapter 2. God is remaking his creation, but unlike before, where he blessed a man and a woman who knew no sin, here he blessed these men even in their sin. And isn't that the best news? God does not reserve his blessings for the sinless. He pours them out on us even when we can't help but mess up. Just to assure Noah that he can be trusted, God sealed his blessing by making a covenant. Although we call this the Noahic covenant, its benefits reach well beyond its namesake. And in this way, it is unique among the covenants as God commits himself not only to Noah, but to his descendants after him and to every living creature on the earth. God would never destroy the earth by flood again, and to mark his commitment to humanity and all of creation, he gave a sign, a rainbow. This is a one-sided covenant, which means God entered into this commitment requiring absolutely nothing of his creation. In doing so, this covenant reestablished what was already true of God's relationship with the world. God is the giver and sustainer of life, all life. In the covenant with Noah, we see God promising to be faithful even if humanity is not. And just as that was something Noah and his family could count on back then, it is also something we can count on right now. The good news of the Noahic covenant is that when we are faithless, God is faithful. When we are sinful, He is merciful. God will never give up on His creation. He will never give up on us. Did you hear that? What a great reminder, my friends. When we are faithless, God is faithful. When we are sinful, He is merciful. God will never give up on His creation. He will never give up on us. That was true in Noah's day and is 100% true in our lives as well. I just love that amazing truth. Now, of course, I can't move on without taking a bit to discuss the significance of God placing the rainbow in the sky. Here in verse 13, we read the word rainbow in the NLT translation. But some other Bible translations say, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. This is not so much a sign for man, but for God. This bow in the clouds will remind God of his own promise. But some of my research did mention that it also had to be a comforting sign to Noah and his family. Though their feet were again on solid ground, the sound of rushing water had surely left an impression on them. Do you think the next time they saw clouds gathering and the sky darkening that their fears started to take over as they wondered? Is God's judgment about to rain down on us again? Is he once again going to wipe out the world? Then imagine them looking up to see the bow, the rainbow. What reassurance that would have been to them. Such tenderness from God. Several of my study Bible notes said basically the very same thing about this. Throughout the Old Testament, the word bow refers to a weapon of war or wrath. So the bow that God placed in the sky was not merely a curve of light shining through the rain. This sign represented an archer's bow, a weapon. But this bow is not hung in the sky and strung tight with arrows at the ready, pointing toward the earth. It is loose and hanging at the warrior's side, pointing toward heaven. The bow in the sky is a sign that God is no longer at war with those who have found grace. God has hung up his bow for only one reason. It is not because Noah and his descendants would no longer sin, and it's not because he will now overlook sin. He can hang up his bow because God chose to aim the arrows of his wrath and judgment toward an innocent Christ rather than toward guilty sinners. The bow in the clouds reminds us that the grace we enjoy has come to us at a great cost to God, to Jesus. Wow, just wow. So we remember that the story of Noah begins with him finding favor with God, walking in close fellowship with him, and obeying the Lord. But then in chapter 9, we see it ends with him lying drunk and naked in his tent, and then delivering a curse on Canaan. 
So we see that even after the flood, the human race still exhibited some of the same sinful characteristics that caused the judgment by flood in the first place. Some resources I discovered suggested that Noah, as a witness to the destruction of all he knew, may have suffered from survivor's guilt, which may have led to his drunken behavior. Noah is for sure struggling in these verses in chapter 9, which makes perfect sense when we consider all he has been through and seen. Can you imagine the trauma his whole family was dealing with in the days, weeks, months, and even years to come? In verse 20, we see it said that after the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground and he planted a vineyard. While we can know with certainty that this incident could not have happened right after exiting the boat, as vineyards take time to become fruitful, these verses do leave much uncertainty as to what exactly happened in that tent to lead Noah's eventual curse of Ham through his son Canaan. The New Living Translation Illustrated Bible Note for 9.22 offers this possible explanation. Ham's behavior was shameful. He gazed upon his naked father, and rather than covering him and keeping the matter secret, Ham robbed Noah of his dignity by announcing it to his brothers instead. So we ultimately see this embarrassing and awkward situation for Noah leads him to curse Canaan. Back in verse 18, we learned that Canaan is actually Ham's son, Noah's grandson. Of course, one of the first questions that comes to my mind here is why would Noah curse his grandson if Ham is the one who dishonored him? In researching this, there was a common explanation that kept showing up in various sources. In the Bible, sometimes a curse is defined as a prophetic foresight. Some Bible scholars believe that is what is happening here, that Noah is speaking what he sees as an insight from God for the future of Canaan. We will see later in our study time together that these words become true. Canaan settled in an area that will eventually become known as Israel, and the people there would become known as the Canaanites. This is significant because later on we will see a man named Joshua step into an assignment to help the Israelites defeat the Canaanites to allow them to enter their promised land. More on all of that in our future studies together, but remember this is confirmation of the truth to what I will soon share about being sure to let your eyes fall on each name in genealogical listings. Those names relate to biblical history, people, and so on, and we will discover this in these thin, crinkly pages of our Bibles. Let's now consider this thought from the flooded book and study when Nikki Koziar says, The first time we hear Noah speak, he speaks both blessings and curses. We don't see any conversations between God and Noah or Noah and his family anywhere in Genesis chapters 6 through 8. At the end of chapter 9, however, we hear the first recorded words from Noah, and once again we see evidence of his humanity, as we did in the vineyard, and that he speaks both blessings and curses over his family. Here's the good news. Noah still made it into the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith, which is hopeful for all of us that we don't have to be perfect and can still have an incredible legacy of faith. Legacy of Faith. How fitting she speaks of Noah in this way as I also came across this devotional regarding Genesis chapters 9 and 10 in my She Reads Truth Bible, which further develops this idea of a legacy of faith. Every spiritual giant is standing on someone else's shoulders. That is the unexpected sermon proclaimed through Noah's life after the flood. After the dramatic events found in Genesis chapters 6 through 8, the narrative pivots past Noah to his family and a long list of names identifying Noah's children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, family, generations, descendants, clans. This is the drumbeat of generational language we hear in these chapters. The words father and son are mentioned nearly 30 times in just 61 verses. A chronic skimmer, I'm tempted to gloss over generational lists. But if I resist the urge and pay attention, I see the branches of Noah's family tree are loaded with significance. 
Canaan was Noah's grandson. We will see that name again as the place God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and the Israelites in Exodus chapter 3, verse 17, otherwise known as the Promised Land. Egypt was another grandson of Noah. He would settle in the place where Joseph would later reign under Pharaoh in Genesis 45, verse 8, and where Jesus would flee with his parents in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, thereby fulfilling an ancient prophecy. While it may seem like Jesus is far removed from this early story of Genesis, that isn't really the case. Noah's son Shem was a chosen branch on the family tree. From his line would come Abraham, the Israelites, King David, and ultimately Jesus, our Savior. After the floodwaters receded, Noah went back to life as usual. He tended a vineyard and bounced grandbabies on his knees. For 350 years after the flood, life simply went on. Then something unremarkable happened. So Noah's life lasted 950 years. Then he died. Genesis chapter 9, verse 29. Despite his great triumph on the ark and his legacy of radical obedience, Noah's story ended with a funeral, just like mine will. But the torch of faith was passed through the generations, and that flame can be traced back to this spark. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him, as found in Genesis chapter 7, verse 5. Obedience to God was a gift Noah gave to the next generation. When we obey God, we are storing away treasure for those who will come behind us. Noah's children and grandchildren made an impact that we are still feeling today, but it didn't happen instantly. We can affect future generations too, but we have to make peace with the marathon of life, refusing to settle for the sprint. Noah's life shows us that being serious about kingdom building means being serious about delayed gratification. His story urges us to desire for the Lord to be glorified in His timing. As God's people, we stand on the shoulders of those who have been faithful to obey before us. Their stories, like Noah's, remind us that when we obey, in time God builds a legacy of faith through us. Did you hear that, my friends? We have to make peace with the marathon of life, refusing to settle for the sprint when it comes to the lives of our children and grandchildren even. All the yeses, choices and actions in our everyday life matter for generations to come. What will our legacy of faith be? Okay. I'm going to pause this for a moment right here to point out something I feel is so important for us to hold on to. As a takeaway of sorts from Noah's story, we can obviously see that the flood has not rid the world of sin. In all truth, if God had wanted to do that, he would have had to eliminate the entire human race, including Noah and his family. But God, our God would not do that because he had already promised that the offspring of Eve would one day crush the head of Satan. With that in mind, what seems to be a sad ending to Noah's story is redeemed when we remember the beginning of his story. Remember back with me to Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Can I let you in on a surprising fact I'd discovered when studying what the word favor means here? Listen to this description from the promised one seeing Jesus in Genesis by Nancy Guthrie. Noah found favor or grace with the Lord. Or perhaps it would be better to say that grace found Noah. And when grace found Noah... Grace determined to have the last word in Noah's life. His surroundings and his sinful nature and his evil ancestries certainly spoke into his life and had their impact, but they simply did not have the final say about who or what would happen to him. Most of my life, I assumed that Noah found favor in God's eyes because of his righteousness, that God looked at humanity and found the one person who sought to please him and therefore granted him favor and provided salvation in the ark. But that is not the case at all. The grace came before the goodness. It was the grace of God poured out on Noah, based not on Noah's goodness, but on God's choice that made Noah righteous. Noah did not earn this favor from God. It was a gift. 
pure and simple and undeserved. In fact, God's favor is never something that can be earned or purchased. It is always a gift. The grace that found Noah changed Noah. In fact, it shaped everything about his life and identity. It does not mean that Noah never sinned, though. Like all sinners who find acceptance with God, Noah received this righteousness by faith. So this favor had not come to Noah because of his good behavior, and he could not lose it because of his bad behavior. This is the good news of the seemingly heartbreaking ending to Noah's story. And this is the good news at the end of our stories, too. If grace has found us and is clearly at work in us, we do not have to fear that sins in our past or sins in our future will disqualify us for enjoying the benefits of God's grace in our lives. God has bound himself to us, and nothing can come between us. Did you pick up on that truth, friends? Favor is another word for grace. Listen to this again. Noah did not earn this favor from God. It was a gift, pure and simple and undeserved. In fact, God's favor is never something that can be earned or purchased. It is always a gift. I don't know about you, but I often read or hear about spiritual giants in the Bible and feel like they're in a league of their own. But here we see that Noah's favor was actually grace, the same grace available to us. His favor wasn't in his righteousness. It was the gift of grace and a willing obedience to walk with God. We too find favor with God. Let's not miss this truth, my friends. Amazing grace for sure. So continuing on, the Bible Project's video summary of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 describes what has been happening so far in today's episode in this way. We are told that God is broken with grief, that humanity is ruining his good world, and they're ruining each other. And so out of a passion to protect the goodness of his world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil with a great flood. But he protects one blameless human, Noah and his family, and he commissions him as a new Adam. He repeats a divine blessing and commissions him to go out into the world. And so our hopes are really high, but then Noah fails too, and also in a garden. He goes and he plants a vineyard and he gets drunk out of his mind. And then one of his sons, Ham, does something shameful to his father in the tent. And so here we have our new Adam, naked and ashamed, just like the first. And the downward spiral begins again. It all leads to the foundation of the city of Babylon. Okay, more on Babylon in a minute, but stay with me here. In an effort to save us a few minutes in this episode, and to avoid mispronouncing probably a solid 99.9% of the names of the sons of Noah and the children born to them after the flood, I am not reading chapter 10 of Genesis out loud, do you hear? But please, don't look at this as a pass for reading through this listing of names. Be sure to let your eyes fall on each one. As I have mentioned before, genealogy listings point out that people are important to God as individuals. Their lives matter to God. So, if you have not done so already, please press pause and go read those names for yourself right now. I'll wait for you here. I absolutely promise. <laughs> Moving on. As a point of reference, these listings of names in chapter 10 are called the Table of Nations in other translations of the Bible. The NLT Illustrated Bible Study Note explains it in this way. This passage is called the Table of Nations because its list explains the origins of most of the peoples of the ancient Near East. The names correspond to biblical names for major people groups, tribes, and regions. The list does not cover all the names of the earth. Rather, it covers the groups most relevant for biblical history. I know I sound like a broken record about this, but see what I mean about how important it is for us to read through each one of these names. I promise it will prove very valuable as we continue in our studies of the various nations and people groups we will encounter along the way. Before we do move on, though, there is one name in particular found in chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, that we need to take a closer look at. 
Nimrod is the great-grandson of Noah and the grandson of Ham. These verses say he grew to become a great, mighty hunter and warrior, and is considered the leader of those who built the Tower of Babel in the land of Shinar, although the Bible never actually states this. Shinar is another name for Babylon, and Nimrod is credited with building quote-unquote great cities, such as Babylon and Nineveh. Nimrod's name can be translated as we shall rebel, and he is often thought to be a rebel against God. The meaning of Nimrod's name could actually be foreshadowing for what we will now read in Genesis chapter 11 from the New Living Translation, the Tower of Babel. At one time, all the peoples of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. This is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. First of all, please note that I am intentionally stopping our reading and study in chapter 11, verse 9. But know that I promise to revisit this listing from Shem to Abram in more detail in a future episode. Truthfully, all these names will make much more sense when we pick up with Abram, who is later renamed Abraham, in Genesis 12. I promise to share more on the reason for this delay later in today's episode. Be listening for that near the end of our time together. Okay, so just to clarify a bit what's going on here. Although the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 describes the descendants of Noah all spread out across the world, the story of the Tower of Babel returns us to a time before the scattering of these people to show us the main reason for this scattering in the first place. The Stairways to Heaven devotional in the She Reads Truth Bible describes what is happening in this way. In Genesis 11, the people said to one another, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Based on the building's description, with its top in the sky, and parallels found in other ancient literature, the tower they began to build was most likely a ziggurat, a mountain-shaped temple intended to serve as a meeting place between heaven and earth, where human beings could visit with the gods. Eden had been a place where heaven and earth met, and now the people of Babylon were attempting to create their own Eden in their own strength. As mentioned in this devotional I just read, I was able to confirm from various sources in my research that the Tower of Babel was most likely a ziggurat, which is a common structure in Babylon at the time. Most often built as temples, ziggurats were rectangular towers with steps or ramps leading up the sides. Ziggurats stood as high as 300 feet and were often 300 feet wide, making them a focal point of the cities they were in. There are many interesting perspectives as to why this group of people would decide to build this. A lot of it may have had to do with pride, thinking they could actually build something to reach heaven. Given these measurements and the enormity of these structures, the people in this story seem to have built this tower as a monument of their own greatness, something for the whole world to see. But some of the reasoning could have also been fear. After all, the account of the flood had been verbally passed down for at least two generations. Perhaps they feared another flood would come, and this would be the only way they could be saved. Whatever their reasoning, we can be certain that this was a strong statement and a violation against God's command to be fruitful, multiply, to repopulate the earth. Rather than obeying God and trusting Him for their security and significance, 
They took matters into their own hands and determined that they would create their own security and significance on their terms and in their timing. God knew their desire for self-sufficiency would harden their hearts toward him and make it harder and harder for them to see their need for him in their lives. So in his mercy, we see God confuse their languages and force them to scatter all throughout the earth as he has originally commanded them to do in chapter 9. Before we end our time together, friends, I would like us to take a moment to join together in prayer. Father God, I lift up all of my friends listening to this podcast right now. Please help us to recognize that spiritual giants like Noah are not in an unreachable league of their own. They are real people, just like each one of us. Help us to realize and remember that the favor we see you placed on Noah's life was actually grace, the same grace available to us. Your gift of grace and Noah's willingness to obey your instructions helped him to be a crucial part in your story of rescue and redemption here on earth. Let us not count ourselves out of the role you have for each one of us in what you are still developing in your rescue and redemption story to this very day. When we are faithless, you are faithful. When we are disobedient and sinful even, you are merciful. We are so humbled that you have never given up on creation to this day, and you will never give up on us either. Thank you, Father God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as promised, I have an important announcement to share about where we are heading in our next study. So, drum roll, please. Up next, we will be taking a pause in the book of Genesis and the teaser we have in the lineage of Noah to Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham, to move into the book of Job. The reason we go to Job now instead of continuing in Genesis is because we're reading chronologically. Most biblical historians put Job's timeline after Noah, but slightly before the time of Abraham. So we're going to read Job's story in the book of Job, and then afterward go back to Genesis, where we'll dive right into Abraham's story. Please remember that one of my personal goals for our time studying together is that we begin to see the big picture story or meta-narrative of the Bible as a whole, and this includes reading it chronologically. With that in mind, please remember that this show is scheduled to release every other Wednesday wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And can I just say that I'm extremely grateful every time one of you leaves stars or a review. I'm just so very appreciative and thankful that you continue to support and encourage me that you keep showing up to study with me, my friends. And if you are curious about digging deeper into any of the things we discussed today, please be sure to check out the show notes by swiping up in your podcast screen to see them below. But if you can't find them there, they're always available at mfaring.com in the show notes pages. This time, I included a couple bonus links for digging deeper, one to an article comparing the story of Noah and the flood to the original creation story, and another with more facts about Nimrod. Good stuff. I hope you find some time to check them out. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. My friends.